Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Literacy View. We are kicking off January 2024 with so many wonderful people. And I am so pleased to have Dr. Jan Wasowicz with us today. And she is the founder and author of Spelling. So I'm going to get her bio right here. She is the founder and president and CEO of Learning by Design. Um, she is the author of Spell and Spellings. I am on her listserv and I've been following Jan forever. Uh, she has more than 40 years of experience as a language literacy and learning specialist. She is a licensed SLP. She has worked with students who have language-based reading, writing, and spelling problems in a variety of educational settings, including public schools and private schools. And uh, Jan also is the inventor of aerobics. So anyone who has heard of aerobics, she is uh, the inventor of that software. And she has contributed so much to the profession. It is an honor to have Jan here with us today. And um, we are going to be discussing today an article, a blog that came out rather recently, written by Lynn Stone. And um, she wrote, um, Culty as Charged, Why the Speech to Print Movement Needs Breaks. And then she did a part two with solutions. So we're going to address both of those blogs. One just continues on from the other. And, um, you know, just to let people know, um, Judy does not have a background in speech to print. So she's going to be learning right along with the audience, which is great. And she'll have great questions. I do have a background in speech to print. As a matter of fact, phonographics was my first, um, you know, training that I had in structured literacy and phonographics is a speech to print. Um, since then, I uh, took the sounds right training, but I wanted to let the audience know that I am independent. I do not have my own program. And when I work with schools as a consultant, I am always um, objective and unbiased the same way Judy and I run this podcast. So um, I, you know, I wanted to keep it that way. And the reason Judy and I wanted Jan on was because Jan is an expert and always points to evidence. She doesn't get wrapped up in um anything that is culty, as the article uh, mentioned. So I thought she would be a great guest. So welcome, Jan. So my thank first- Thank you. Can, first, I first, can I first just say thank sure. you, Faith and Judy, for this opportunity? Oh. I really appreciate it. And Faith, you have been on the Spell Talk list, sir, forever. Um, I think we're in our 18th year. And I just remember seeing your name on there from way back. So thank oh. you for that. Yeah, you're very welcome. And it's it's- I've learned so much. It's fabulous. It is fabulous. And we should probably put that in the um, notes. So for that people- would be great. Yeah, that really underscores the focus on the research, the evidence, because that's really awesome. what we need to ground our discussion, any discussion in. For sure. Yes, yes. So first question, Jan, um, is 
not even about the article first. It is what is speech to print. I want mm. your definition because then we could get into the article. So for people listening, a lot of people don't really know that um, there is another approach that is structured, that is cumulative, and um, it could be very new to people listening. So if you could explain that first. Yeah, and, and speech to print is kind of a, well, is a very popular term these days, and it can be used differently by different people. So I think that is a great place to start. Um, the definition that I use is speech to print instruction is instruction that begins with spelling, so phonological encoding, going from the phoneme to the grapheme. So, but it begins there. It also includes decoding instruction as well. So it's an approach to reading and writing instruction that begins with spelling and also integrates reading. Um, that's number one. Number two, it is organized, the instruction, the, the curricula, the, the activities, they're organized around spoken language, whether it's the phoneme or the spoken syllable, uh, whatever the case may be, it's always taking into account the organization of the brain right? Because we're, we're naturally wired for oral language. And our kiddos are coming to school with that natural wiring in place. So it's beginning the, the literacy instruction, the reading and writing instruction begins with what the kids are bringing to school. And that's the oral language. And then the third component of speech to print instruction um, within my definition is that it, it recognizes, it's an approach that really recognizes that you can leverage um, encoding and spelling instruction and practice and engagement to not only improve spelling, uh, which we recognize as an important skill, but also to improve reading. It, there's a transfer effect. And I could talk more about that as we go along. But just to summarize on the definition, it's uh, speech to print instruction is an approach to reading and writing that begins with spelling, includes reading, decoding, um, is organized around spoken language and recognizes that uh, spelling and uh, encoding words uh, is a can be leveraged to get more more um, improvement in decoding than just decoding instruction alone. Yeah. So Judy, so that's kind of the beginning point of this. All right. So in reading the article. Having that background, I think, is pretty important, all right? Before I start asking Jan anything, you read the article. Is there a question that you want to kick off with? And then I'll kind of get into other things. So first of all, I want to say thank you to Jan for being here today. This is really exciting because here I am on winter break and I'm getting PD at home, on my couch, sitting as comfortable as can be, and really excited for this um, experience. I guess it's like an experience. It's like a virtual reality. Here it is. Um, <laughs> I think it's amazing. And and I think the thing that's really important to keep in mind is just because, you know, you're working with one approach that's working well for students doesn't mean there's not another approach that may be working and helpful for other students. That doesn't mean you know, you're abandoning a certain practice, but, you know, just being open-minded. That's who I've always been. So I think it's important that Jan also mentioned that, you know, she's going to tie the conversation back to the research and what the evidence is saying. So I think that's really important. 
But there's almost a, a, um, a confusion that I already had or a question. So when I've been hearing speech to print, I've been thinking that it's all about the sounds first. I didn't realize that it connects to the spelling first. Is that what you guys were saying just now? That's yeah, you, and clear it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You, you begin with the the sounds, the phonemes, and you very right. quickly map those phonemes to the graphemes. So there is the wow. the orthography brought in almost immediately. I didn't know that it was fast because, like, in my experience, um, writing has always been the more complex pillar for so many students, and you know, making that connection and seeing the transference in phonics to the writing has taken some time for students. So that's such an interesting concept. I thought it was just like immersing students into sounds and sounds and understanding the sounds. I didn't know that it quickly shifts into connecting the spelling. So I can't wait uh, to hear more about that. I did not know that. So that's very different from just phonemic awareness activities. I want to make that very clear to the audience that Speech to print isn't just starting with phonemic awareness activities. It starts with the sound. So if a child hears the word cat, again, I'm just giving a quick example. Right. You know, they hear cat and then right away the letters would be there to build the word cat and making the connection, right? Hearing, ooh, k. So let's find what would show what would show at, what would show t, to build the word cat. So um, kind of like foundations and the phonics approach, because that's very similar to what I thought I knew. You wouldn't be starting with the word cat first. In the other way is you are looking at the sounds at what's the word cat. So you wouldn't start with the word cat. Here, I hear a whole word. And I'm breaking it down into its components to find the letters that match with the sounds. The other way, print to speech, is I see the letter C, I see the letter A, I see the letter T. What are the sounds? At what's the word? Cat. So I hope that's clear now that it's just going from the spelling to improve the idea of decoding, because once they could match up the letters to what they hear, again, this is philosophical. People could disagree with this. I'm just saying what the strategy is. Okay. Mm -hmm. Chan, why don't you jump in? Did I miss something? that? Well, a couple of things. Um, First of all, it's true that we want to uh, immediately, almost immediately go to print. So the, the notion of extended phonological awareness drills and training where it's just the sounds alone, that is no longer supported. There's a time and a place and you need to break out that skill for students and it's important, but as quickly as possible, you need to then get the letters integrated with the phonemes. Um, rather than spending, you know, half a kindergarten year doing just oral exercises for phonological awareness. Um, and then, yeah, to clarify on that difference between speech to print, print to speech, it's really spelling first or decoding first. Which one are you doing? I think that's the easiest way to break it down. And then I did want to also add to the definition of speech to print, because I think this is going to tie in a lot to where we're going today which is speech to print is just one important component of instruction. And, excuse me, 
in my work and, and what the research shows is that the, the instruction also needs to be what's called multilinguistic, meaning you're bringing in the phonology, the orthography, the morphology, and you're integrating those pieces. So yes, speech to print, you start there, but you've got to also quickly bring in all those other pieces. Um, so it's speech to print, it's multilinguistic, and then there's metalinguistic pieces as well. But those are probably a little more beyond where we're going to focus the discussion today. So I won't spend time right yeah, now. Yeah, right. Because the audience definitely has uh, varied experiences. It's not just teachers. It's not just reading mm -hmm. specialists. We have parents listening to this as well. So the whole point of this is to just try to give some foundational information so that when you hear an approach, you, you aren't confused. You know that you could speak to it intelligently. So let's go to the article. Um, you know, um, Lynn Stone is, um, you know, certainly an, a well-known person in the field. And I respect Lynn's work. I just want to put that out there right away. And she wrote this, I think, knowing that there she would get a rise out of people. You know, you could see from the tone of the article. So I don't think it would be unexpected if we kind of look at the article deeply. By the way, Lynn knows that we are doing this. She was invited to come on, but she is in China or somewhere around the world. And she will join the Literacy View at some point. Um, and she was gracious and appreciative that we um, want to have a discussion, not just poke holes in the article, but have a real discussion about it. Okay, so here it is. Um, my first point that she said was uh, right here. She said, the truth of the matter is that if you took and applied the UFLI manual or teach your child to read in 100 Easy Lessons by Sieg Siegfried Engelman, you would get your students reading just as well as you would using a big expensive S2P program. And now I have to say that in some ways, I really do agree with her. I really do agree that there are kids that could truly learn well, and it could be with an inexpensive program. You know, I've mentioned I have a Facebook group for Word Wasp and Hornet, which are these manuals that, you know, get kids up and, and reading through intervention. I don't think everything needs to be a big, expensive commercial program. However, I think she kind of minimizes the concerns here um, in terms of that there are kids that would learn the language better with a certain approach, learn how to read, learn how to spell. She seems to think, and you know, she has said this, that S2P, um, speech to print, is um, not all that. And so what are some of your thoughts about that comment in terms of something that's inexpensive that could do the same job? Okay, yeah, I'll comment on that, but I also want to comment on the speech to print is not all that because there is research to say it is that. So um, mm -hmm. let's come back, please remind yes. me if I don't come yeah. back to that. Yes. But yes. in terms of, yes, yeah, so um, I agree with you that 
some students will learn no matter what, really. So we have to kind of put them on the side. And now we're really thinking about those students who are going to need the support to varying degrees, but are going to need some amount of support. The program, while there might be a lot of freely available materials that are fine, and I'm not going to comment on UFLY or others, what really is going to matter at the end of the day is how well the teachers understand what they're doing and can use the materials that they're using. Because invariably, students get stuck. And unless you really understand why you're doing what you're doing and how the whole system and process works, you will be stuck then too, because if you're just kind of following the materials, you, you, you need to understand how it all works under the hood. Um, so oftentimes what you see with, with um, products that are not free is that you get a lot of the professional development support and other things that are needed to go along with really developing your own um, knowledge, because we have a lot to learn once we get out of our pre-service programs, right? Regardless of which program, you know, I was very well clinically trained um, through my master's and PhD program. I'm learning today. So, you know, we're right. always learning. Um, so, yeah, so I would say that materials themselves aren't the solution, as good or as good as they may be. It's what you do with them, how you use them, and really how much you understand what's, what, what they do and what, how the system works, the language yeah. literacy system. I, yeah, I would agree with you. Um, Judy is a coach in New York City, and we talk about this all the time. And it doesn't matter what the program is. It could be a core program. It could be a phonics program. Mm -hmm. um, Judy, you know, Lynn said here... Um, that, you know, a program, it's just that selling a phonics system approach, way, lifestyle, orientation, whatever, can be a license to print money in education. So out come the business people to bind you to their particular niche. I'm not saying you're in a cult, but if you call yourself a brand name practitioner, school trainer, there's a bit of a problem. I agree with her. What are your thoughts? Because I'm Wilson certified, but I never, and you know that, I don't walk around with a badge saying, I'm Wilson certified. I'm, a, you know, a sounds right practitioner. I talk about being a literacy consultant. As Jan said, it's the knowledge that counts. What are your thoughts about using a brand name as a label for yourself? Well, I agree. You want to first identify. I'm sorry. I was just posing that to Judy for a second. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted Judy to jump in because Judy um, works in a school with a program. I just want to hear what she has to say about that whole idea. Sorry, Jan. Go ahead, Judy. Okay, so, you know, it's funny, Faith, that you mentioned that. So I woke up this morning, you know, the holidays are kind of over. New Year's is coming. And the first thing I was thinking about this morning, I saw a post and somebody wrote something about, um, I think it was about HMH. And um, HMH is into reading. And, you know, it's the hot ticket in New York City right now. And there's also other programs. There's Wit and Wisdom. There's um, Expeditionary Learning. And, you know, now they're labeled as the SOR programs. And I think we do have to be very mindful 
you know, curriculum is money, right? These things do cost money and they're still going to have flaws. And HMH was related to Harcourt, which was, you know, um, TC, Teachers College, the reading and writing program. So I think we always do have to be mindful. I mean, I think we're moving in the right direction that schools are selecting programs that have better practices for kids. But that still doesn't mean that everything is going to be perfect. It still does mean that, you know, there are going to be people that are, you know, unfortunately trying to make money. And it all comes down to, you know, not everything in programs are going to be aligned to the research also. Like Faith and I were speaking, we've seen things in quote unquote research-based evidence-based programs that were like, what? Was that really field tested? So I think it's really important to be mindful of that. And the reason that I'm really open to hearing about a different approach is because I know that, you know, a lot of the approaches that I'm working with now, I'm obsessed with. But yes, I don't walk around saying, oh, Foundations is the only program. Some kids still struggle with foundations, right? I do that. We we collect data. We look at the data trackers and some kids are still not thriving, right? So they're, you know, being open-minded is important. I know that, you know, some of the approaches that I'm working with now do have a lot of rules and things for kids to remember. Maybe there's an approach Faith's been telling me for a while. There's approaches that don't focus on rules. Is speech to print one of those? programs. Yeah. So Jan, oh I'm sorry I interrupted you before. I, we would love to hear what you have to say about this, because I do think print to speech also is a brand. You know, the article said something about the right. speech to exactly. print brand or culty. Right. I think that there are cults in Wilson too, and OG cults that they don't want to hear about anything else. Your thoughts, Jan? On the cultiness of the name, it's a, anything it's a, you want to comment on, yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. So, speech to print is a catchy name. It's in fact, it's very misleading. I mean, that's a whole other discussion. It's really not speech to print. It's phoning to graphing, but that doesn't have the same buzz and stick that speech to print does. So, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a popular term that people have grabbed onto. Um, is it a movement? To me, it is, as I've defined it, it's based on the current research. It's current best practices about what we know about teaching foundational skills. So, um, and, and we've been doing it, and my co-authors and my research colleagues have been doing it and researching it for 20 to 30 years. So it's not even a new fad. This is a lot of um, growing research over many decades. Yes. Um, in fact, phonographics, Faith, you mentioned that one, that goes back to what, the late 80s or early 90s? The 90s. I, that's yeah. when I first started to discover, yeah. but it's been okay. around for a long time. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, it's a catchy term. Yes. And it's caught on. Yes. But so, and and I, that's why I think you always want to ask, too, how are you defining speech to print? And then look under, because what you really want to do as a savvy consumer um, of whether it's not knowledge or product, commercial product, is you want to know, well, what, what does this speech to product thing do? Um, and what is the research that, that points in the direction of, yes, the, these are current best practices. And I say current because science evolves. And 20 years from now, it may be different. Uh, so here's a perfect example of how we have to evolve with the science. 
you mentioned that I'm the inventor of aerobics, which I invented in the 19, early, early mid 1990s. At that time, decades, 30 or 40 decades of NIH research pointed to the importance of phonological awareness instruction and just phonological awareness instruction, kind of as a, you know, an isolated skill. So I created the aerobic software, which is a set of CD-ROMs that develop you know, phonological skills as listening oral only skills. Um, I released that product as I was following the research. I released that product in 1997. And in 1998, the federal government, concluding these decades of NIH research, mandated that every single student in every single school in the United States must receive phonological awareness instruction. It was based on a huge body of research by multiple researchers, multiple research institutions. That's changed. Okay, so I created aerobics. And, but aerobics, you know, people keep asking me even today, well, when are you going to create another aerobics? Well, I have. It's now speech to print because the research is telling us you don't do extended phonological awareness only training. You map it and you integrate it and map it with the graph themes as quickly as possible. Again, some students, and there's a time and a place, and this is where that teacher knowledge and really understanding the when and for whom and why and how much um, and how you've got to be, that's all got to be part of your, you know, what you know in order to use any program product material properly. Um, that's why I love you. I just want to jump in. Wow, the L and, word. And I'm going to say cheers because I love you. Thank you. And cheers I'll explain why. Cheers. And here's why. We're drinking for a good cause today. A good cause. Because, Jan, you were not so attached to your work that you couldn't say, you know what? Maybe I should do things differently. You didn't say, oh, you know, you didn't make up lies. You didn't protect it. You didn't say, oh, at the time, that was something that you truly researched. And then as it went on, you you evolved too. And that's why we're having you on because you're able to step away and really be fair-minded. I just wanted to say that. What about the culty stuff? Let's hear about that. And, and what you asked me the question again? I'm sorry. Sorry. So about this idea of this movement being a cult. Well, it has caught a lot of attention, speech to print. Um, and, and this is a good thing in that if, if what you are then being led to or becoming aware of or learning about is research-based, and you know, that's where you have to be the savvy consumer, but I think it is a good a good thing. I wouldn't call it a cult. I would say it's current best practices. It's the evolving science. Um, now, it's a cult if you lob, um, lob onto it and um, glom onto it. I'm sorry, glom onto it and um, try to do it with every kid in every time and every way. And and it's like this, you know, one size fits all thing. And, and even as I said earlier, it's not just about speech to print, it's multilinguistic, it's metalinguistic. There are so many other components of learning literacy. And so if you glom onto just that speech to print piece, you're missing a whole lot of the other pieces. Um, in that sense, I would say that would be a culty kind of experience of it. 
Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's probably what Lynn was talking about here, um, because obviously there are programs that fall under that category. And I think if she were here listening to you, she would probably, and I can't speak for her, she would probably um, be open-minded to what you're saying, I'm sure. No, but- I have like 30 questions, Faith. Yeah, okay. So um, I'm glad you do. I want, Judy, as soon as, um, yeah, I want you to ask your questions. You mentioned flaws before, Judy. And Lynn mentioned that in the article. And she said, they, meaning the culty S2P people. And again, I'm not calling them that. I'm going with the article. Um, they identify so closely with the brand. There's a lot of name calling in literacy in general. Doesn't that suck? Uh, well, I think that people are confused and we all have a habit of wanting to get our point across and then it appears as though it sounds like that. But I'm just reading what's here. They identify so closely with the brand that they become blind to its flaws and instead turn in on themselves when the flaws, flaws become apparent. So I think what she's saying here is that there is this devotion to a brand or a style of teaching and they become blinded to the flaws and just kind of shrug and maybe ignore it or protect it. What are your thoughts in terms of what you've seen with any program? I think that's absolutely true. I personally agree with her on that, that people, you know, they don't want to hear about any flaws. Like the way Jan was able to step away and say, wait a minute, maybe I need to change something. I think people do become very protective and uh, defensive. What are your thoughts, Judy? I think that's probably true. I mean, you know, growing up, in the 80s, I remember people were like obsessed with Jordache and there was no better gene than Jordache. And then people were obsessed with a certain brand of computers, Commodore 64. But as you've seen, time evolves, things evolve, um, research evolves. And, you know, we have to follow the research. I think what's really hard, though, is so A, this was an opinion piece, right? So I didn't see a lot of research in the piece. So that was uh, something I was wondering about. and. You know, is the research showing that this program is more effective than print-to-speech? Or is there research on both ends? Like, you know, the thing with research is it's hard to understand sometimes because, you know, there's going to be some research that maybe showed that this didn't wasn't as effective. Or maybe there's some research that shows it's more effective. How do you determine which research to listen to? A... Another point is, you know, some pieces are being written as opinion pieces, but somebody might not realize that. And then they might totally, you know, say, you know what, I'm not even going to look at this approach because this approach, you know, somebody I respect and admire says it's it's not something I should look at. So I think that there's just so many things to look at. Is it more effective? And how do you determine which child this would be effective for? Because, you know, Looking back, you know, I was trained in read and recovery, right? At some point, that was what was 
said to be most effective for certain students. And I think now that people are more informed and are following the research, how do we make a determination rather than just listening to people's quote unquote opinions? I love, oh my goodness, Judy, I'm giving you a cheers. Really? Yeah, I love I kind of went off on a tangent with my daughter. Because you're thinking probably what everybody else is thinking. You're the voice about with, you know, you are representing a lot of people out there. I really do believe. Jan, go ahead, explain oh, away. Yeah, I want, yes, definitely want to talk about the research. Um, so we know there have been no direct comparisons of a program, a speech to print program, and a print to speech program. Wow, none. That's, no, but it's very rare when there is good re- any research, and especially good research, comparing commercial programs. Academic researchers, scientists are not interested in comparing commercial programs. They're interested in teasing out and understanding the science and and the pieces. Um, So it's rare that you're going to find program comparisons. Um, There have been a lot of studies that have looked at decoding print-to-speech versus spelling speech-to-print. In its simplest form, print-to-speech is decoding and speech-to-print is spelling. And when you look at studies, um, uh, Share, um, known for the the uh, self-teaching hypothesis, David Share, he has found. Um, so we know that when students are decoding words on their own, no one's giving them any feedback. They're just trying to sound out words. The self-teaching hypothesis that he has, you know, it's been out there for decades, is that they are learning and developing their literacy skills through that process. It's called self-teaching, right? He then did a more recent study looking at self-teaching during spelling, spelling of words. And he found that the spelling outcomes are better than the decoding outcomes, that students are learning more during spelling versus reading, decoding. And he even found this effect for irregularly spelled words. And multiple researchers have found similar effects where if you do spelling instruct Conrad, um, and her colleagues have looked at if you do spelling instruction um, on certain patterns versus decoding instruction on the same patterns, the students who um, get the decoding instruction will learn how to decode those words with almost 100% accuracy, but they only show partial transfer to spelling of the same words. There's, and we've all seen this, right? Yeah, my student's getting better at reading, but their spelling still Mm-hmm. Right. Really bad. Whereas in that same study, the students who got the spelling instruction improved their spelling to 98% accuracy and improved their reading of those same words and patterns why? to almost 100% accuracy. I wonder why. Just one second. Um, and not only that, but the students who received spelling instruction generalized what they knew or what they learned to spelling and decoding new words, novel words as well, um, but the decoding students didn't. Why is a great question. Let me tell you one other, well, let me tell you about one other study related to this, and then, yeah, the why is the question. Um, So this study that I'll share here is um, by, Dr. Berninger was one of the authors, but she's not the first author. Um, Drawing a blank, I'll get it for you. Uh, We can put it in the show notes. And they did brain imaging studies with four-year-old preliterate students. Now, this was just writing, okay? There was no saying sounds. There was no 
spelling, reading, nothing. One, so four-year-old students, brain imaging before, then they were in groups. Um, one group of students was shown a letter and asked to trace over it. You know how we get those dotted letters and you trace over them. Okay. Then another group of students was shown a letter and asked to look at it and copy it onto their paper. Another group of students was shown, children, four-year-old children, was shown a letter and asked to find it on the keyboard. And then there was a control group. So basically we had copy, trace, and match. And um, after a week of engaging in these activities, they did post um, instruction. It wasn't really an instruction, it was just engagement and activity. Um, they did post brain imaging. And what they found was in one of those groups of students, there was significantly more development of the reading writing network in the brain. They call it functional um, normalization of the brain, normalization of the functional reading writing circuit. This is a circuit that has to develop in the brain. It develops through proper literacy instruction. So one of those groups demonstrated significantly more brain development of the rate language. And which group do we think it was? Copying. Right. So when the researchers step back and they look at all, I mentioned just a few studies, but they're representative of different ways they've examined this. When they look at all of these studies, um, they, they, each of the researchers hypothesizes why it is. So to be clear, we know that speech to print instruction has been documented to be more, spelling instruction has been documented to be more effective than decoding instruction. Where, what we don't know for sure is the why. And some of the hypotheses that the researchers have put forth are number one, um, you spend more time on tasks to spell a word than you do with reading. So you're, and there's more engagement. There's more active engagement. Mm -hmm. um, there's more attention to the orthographic detail of the word than in spelling than there is for reading. Um, and finally, there's the, um, you've introduced a whole nother motor circuit into the okay. system. And it seems that all of these pieces, you know, again, we don't know why for sure. But all of the researchers pretty much hypothesize the same things. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are some of the hypotheses of why. So this act of spelling, of, of writing letters, um, and as you say, the sounds, whether you're saying them out loud or subvocally, and of course, while we're teaching, I have to have my kids say the sounds out loud because I don't know what's going on inside their head. Um, but this is why. And so, yeah, we have the research to show um, that speech to print um, is more effective than print to speech. Now, that doesn't mean you just do speech to print, but you begin there because you get a lot of transfer over to the decoding and then you work on decoding as well. So here's my um, question from the article, Jan. Um, Lynn started to um, say that this might be fine up to the simple consonant, consonant, vowel, consonant, CCVC, or CVCC type of words. So in other words, if there's a one-to-one -one match between sound and letter, that's fine. But once it gets into the more complex code, she thinks that this is um, an inadequate or poor way to, to approach spelling. And she said it might get kids up in reading. Again, I don't agree, but um, I'm telling you from the article what it says here that basically um, that you, there are poor spellers and she sees them all the time 
using this approach. I have my own thoughts about that, but I want to hear from you since it's stated in the article. Yeah, I think I would recast that to say that speech to print is especially effective for monomorphemic words, words don't have, that don't have more than one morpheme. Because once you start adding morphemes, prefixes and suffixes, now we have to address you know, that instruction. This is what I mean by the multilinguistic. It can't mm-hmm. be just speech to print. Mm-hmm. It's speech to print as the start and, and as a core. I mean, I will be teaching and um, using speech to print learning principles with all my students of every age and grade. Um, but I have to integrate that with morphology when the time is right. Um, I would argue uh, when she says, and I don't, I don't have the article in front of me. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say she says. If if she's arguing that speech to print is only effective for regular sound letter correspondences, the research says that's not true. Um, two of the studies I just mentioned, well, one of the studies I just mentioned, which is David Sher's study. Um, looked at irregularly spelled words. And there's another one by Colin Brander et al. Um, at Florida, uh, Florida State University. They also looked at irregular spelling. So, uh, and Linnea Airy talks about this as well. You know, you still map whether it's a regular representation of the phoneme or an uncommon irregular. You would still use that same mapping phoneme to grapheme speech to, uh, yeah, speech to print process. Now, when you get into multimorphemic words now, yeah, there's a whole lot more that needs to be addressed, of course. Yeah, so I think you hit the nail on the head with when the time is right, okay? I read this article and there are things I agree with Lynn about, as I said, I do think that some of this gets culty and brand name oriented. But as far as the process goes, I really think some of it is off target. And I think she probably didn't go far enough in terms of understanding that when the time is right, that the instruction does morph and change in terms of what you're going to do. So, you know, she talked about silent letters um, that some people will say, it's not, there are no silent letters, letters don't talk. Um, again, that's some things that you'll hear. Um, she talked about schwa. And, um, but again, it's all in the instruction and how you handle it. And, um, you know, I don't think that maybe her own training, that she saw that it does morph. She mentioned rules, the importance of rules, but you could teach generalizations and without saying a rule, by just showing kids, look what's happening here, look what's happening here, what do you notice and pointing things out without getting hung up on teaching it as a rule. I'm just, you know, saying some of the things that I see. She talked about letter names and this is where I disagree with her probably more than anything else that she put in. And she said that then there's the straw man about teaching alphabet letters. uh, And she started to go into the idea that we don't start with letter names. As a practitioner and somebody who's been doing this forever, quite honestly, 
I've seen so many kids that mix up letter names and sounds because their first instruction was to know letter names. And then when they have to um, write, they are leaving out vowel sounds and they're mixing things up. And a lot of that is this confusion between letter names and sounds. And she said in here, if that is confusing, that's basically on the practitioner, that it's not being taught correctly. Um, and I would, uh, you know, disagree. I think she mentions dibbles in there also, Acadians. Acadians actually tests for uh, letters, but not as one of the predictors of reading success. It's there for information, but it's definitely not one of the strands that we're looking for because we know that in order to read, knowing the sounds is going to get you a lot further, faster. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, she definitely listed a whole bunch of things that she's heard about S2P, speech to print. But I do think that, as you said before, there's a time where this does change and that it's going to morph and you are going to bring in morphemes. You are going to bring in um, different aspects of spelling that goes beyond just one-to-one correspondence. Um, What are your thoughts about that? Because, um, you know, as I was reading this, I feel that it was not um, accurate in some ways. Any thoughts about that? So there was a lot in there. Um, I know. There. I know. Sorry about that. That's okay. No, I love it. I love. I love um, your thinking and your questions. So um, on the idea of morphing, thing, you know, it needs to morph over time. Morphology needs to bring. Yes, it needs to morph over time into morphology. I would modify that slightly by. The, we used to think in stage models and stage theories from the 70s that there was, you know, first it's phonology and then it's orthography and then it's morphology. I I don't want to, I, and I don't think you mean this, Faith, but I don't want listeners to think, well, at a certain point, you stop thinking about orthography and phonology. Oh, no, no. no. I know you don't. Um, no. It's more about where, where do you need to pull in the morphology mm-hmm. and where do you pull in the morphology and how do you integrate it with the phonology and the orthography? So, you know, that the other thing is, um, and this speaks to you know, the, the when and the, the evolving with the research. So we um, we initially published the Spellings Curriculum in 2002, and it's based on a large body of research and primarily the research of Ken Apple and Julie Masterson, but others. And um, at the time, there was no research to support um, students being ready for morphological instruction, multimorpheme words um, in in the earlier grades. There just wasn't the research. Um, Now there is, a lot of it is Kanapal's research, there's other research, um, and so we have we have morphed. We have you know, put out a more current edition of the curriculum to represent this evolving science. We also know from his research as well that certain morphemes are um, easier for students to learn than others, or certain types of multimorphemic mm-hmm. words um, are easier than others. And so we would want to look at that in the sequence of instruction. You know, so following a sequence that's going to facilitate the learning. 
as well as you want to look at, and there is no established sequence. We don't have that yet, but we have research to show some types of words are easier than others. We have um, utility of, you know, if you're going to teach an affect that only appears in five, um, two words at that grade level, um, out of all the words in the, in the lexicon, that's not high utility. So when you're selecting which morphemes to teach, let's teach the ones that appear with, with, uh, frequently and therefore have high utility. So I do agree that it needs to be multilinguistic. I do agree that we need to um, follow the research in terms of the when and the how and the why. Um, and yeah, I mean, even with the uh, example in one of her blog posts, which well, let me be clear, I did read the blog post, even though I don't have it in front of me right now. Um, there was one example, um, well, this would probably hold true for all examples, but the example I'm thinking of was the word definitely. And I was thinking, well, wait, who's the student? What grade are they in? You know, this might be very appropriate. In fact, I, I really don't take much issue with the methods. Um, it's the when and the how and the who. So I kept thinking, well, are you trying to do this with a first grade student? I don't think so. Even a third grade student, I would approach a little differently. So. Yeah. That's that's where I think um, we would probably disagree, but I don't think we disagree at all on, on um, needing to be multilinguistic, phonology, orthography, morphology. On um, the rules, um, there are, again, high utility. There are a few rules that hold up almost all the time that can come in handy, but we don't teach rules in, in the approach I use. You know, it's about students discover the rules. I think, as you said, Faith, you put these patterns in front of them they they examine the words. They're very engaged with the orthography and the phonology and, and whatever the meanings of the words. And they are using all those letter sound meaning clues to figure out, well, what is this pattern? And they're discovering it because when they do that, they've internalized the pattern. They're not memorizing a rule that I've said, wah, 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 and that's what they hear, wah, 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 wah. So once they've internalized it, it's a lot easier for them to hold on to it and apply. Now, that said, I'm not a fan of rules. We don't teach many rules, but there are some um, that hold up a lot and can give the students some guidance for sure. Mm -hmm. Judy, I see you looking like you have so much on your mind because I know that you are a big fan of rules and syllable types. And um, certainly, I just want to put it out there, it works. It, it can work for some kids, and some kids can't remember the rules. And we know those kids who can't hold on to those types of things. Being in the field, Faith, is like if you're teaching foundations or a program or a phonics program well, there's usually about four kids in the class that still struggle, even if the instruction is flawless. But most of the kids really that I've seen since I've shifted in this direction do very well with the rules. And some for some of the kids, um, learning how to decode and decode well has been a game changer for them in their literacy instruction when it was more of a discovery learning, but not using this approach, but different approaches where it was a balanced literacy model and then, um, you know, a structured model for a half hour a lot of kids were mixed up and then their saving grace was learning the rules and then they quickly just, you know, learned how to read and don't need me anymore. So, and the other thing that I was thinking about is so many of the programs that we are using in a lot of the classrooms right now have dictation 
as a big priority in their program. So doesn't that kind of relate to the speech to print approach as well? So aren't they kind of interrelated? I think what basically I um I'm not walking away with a full understanding of what instruction would look like. And if I did want to take it, you know, a step beyond this podcast, where would I go to actually see the model in progress? Because it does seem to have some overlap. Certainly so, does. I have I have a I have a lot of comments there. First of all, I, I agree. Some approaches, programs, fill in the blank. Some things work for some students better and some for others. Um so no disagreement there. I would wonder with the kiddos, the kiddos who are getting the, you know, getting it with foundation or any program, again, fill in the right. blank, but you mentioned the foundation. Are they getting it as efficiently as they might with a speech to print approach? That would be my one question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And I think the the the, the reason that I think I still do see a lot of kids in the field still struggling is because the application piece of actually reading connected text isn't happening as much as I'd want to. And I'm wondering also how much does that happen in this approach that you're speaking about? We haven't spoken a lot about the application piece. Yeah. So remember I mentioned earlier about speech to print multilinguistic metalinguistic. It's the metalinguistic piece that focuses on the application. So the approach that we use that I use is speech to print multilinguistic metalinguistic. If you don't, if you just develop skills, but don't teach your students how to apply those and be linguistic problem solvers when they want to read a word they don't know or spell a word they don't know, they have to have metalinguistic skills as well. Um, so that's another piece. But I would go back and I would also want to ask um, with your students, you know, are they learning as efficiently? We don't know. Um, are they, is what they're learning and decoding and they're decoding, improving, generalizing equally over to encoding? Research says it doesn't. You know, I would want to look at your particular students. Um, and then, uh, and this might get to your question about well, what does speech to print really look like? You mentioned dictation. Dictation is fine and good and, and the right time and place, but it would be like saying, well, I'll just have all my students read and they'll figure out how to read. You know, if I just dictate and all my students write, they'll figure out how to spell. That's not speech to print instruction. Does that make sense? Uh, I'm trying to use it. doesn't look like it's not just you tell your kids to write in, in a, you know, in the classroom, it's, you know, hearing the sounds, counting the number of words, oh, okay. you know, the sounds. It's not dictation where we just say something and then the kids are off to write. It's very structured. It so is connected. I just want to clear that up, Jan. Thank so what you. Judy is saying is that the, the, the dictation is totally connected to the phonics that's being taught. Okay. It's so not there's, just there's, hear the sentence, write it down. It is... Basically, though, starting with teaching the reading mm -hmm. and then giving oh, at the word level or the sentence level to, to write. What I'm seeing in the field is not starting with teaching the reading. And that's actually, I'm seeing a lot of isolated work and not enough of the connected reading piece. I'm not seeing a lot of the connected. I'm talking about teaching phonics, teaching the reading part, decoding first, and then the spelling. Yes, that is how Wilson goes. I mean, I know foundations that it's basically. I don't know, you know, but you're taking an assessment faith that starts with hearing the sounds. But that is the idea of connecting it right to the letter. Here, a sound drill. 
Knowing your letters, right? Which is similar to what you guys have been talking about. It's starting with listening to a word and then pulling apart the sounds in a word. It's the first. Oh, oh, Faith, I love you, but I got to I got to push back a little bit. What about like the, the, the first you start with the sounds on the assessment? You're giving just I'm not talking about an assessment. I'm talking about teaching, the teaching of reading. You do a sound drill. That's right. like, okay, right. you do a sound drill. Right. And then they're learning these particular letters. And then you're putting those particular right. the letters to build right. a word. Right. Once right. you build the word, then you're going to use that for dictation. That's a different order from what Jan is talking about. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, so there's definitely a learning curve, I guess, for somebody like me. And I guess it's very hard. Like, you know, I'm reading about it online. I hear about it. But I think until you see it in action and see what it looks like, it's hard to determine. And, you know, what I think is kind of like the sad part is like some schools might just jump on this bandwagon or that bandwagon. And how do we make sure that, you know, um, schools make the right determination for kids? You know, like maybe, you know, some data in schools is not moving as fast as we want. And now they'll jump ship to something else. Whereas, you know, there were disconnected pieces that they didn't fully prioritize enough. And the other thing I was thinking about is, so in the programs that I've seen, the phonics programs that I've worked with, the scope and sequence sometimes doesn't go that fast. And if you're reteaching skills to kids, um, sometimes those reteach, t- you know, take two to five days of instruction of reteaching concepts. And of course, the theory is you got to strengthen the foundation before you keep moving. Otherwise, the kids, kids might crash and burn. But some kids might not crash and burn. And now you haven't exposed kids to certain things so, like the so silent I'm gonna, So I'm going to just jump in. Yeah. Having done both. Yeah. Because I have used yeah. both. Yeah. Each to print is definitely faster. It moves faster. And that is a given by the time they're in first grade, they have the whole code, not, you know, like first grade, they don't get to, from what I'm seeing in the field, they don't get to that silent E fast enough because you had to reteach concepts to the whole class. I'm like, don't be afraid to show them sooner. You could show them during HMH. It doesn't just have to be during phonics time. And it's unfortunate that, you know, some kids aren't exposed sooner and now they haven't fully broken the code. And, you know, there are hear from Jan. You heard a lot, Jan. And I see you look like you are dying to jump in and say something. Go ahead, Jan. Well, again, there's so much there, and I'm not sure where to jump in exactly. But um, um, so we do want students to be exposed to all the patterns. So even in a speech-to-print world, while we might be focused on a pattern, they are reading pattern in our approach. And how I would do it is once they have gone through some activities with the pattern, they're applying it to reading. Um, at an appropriate level for where they are. But now this is not controlled text. This is not, um, you know, only decodable. This is pattern loaded because we know that students learn implicitly statistical learning through exposure to the text. And that's got to be an important part of the, the instruction as well. Um, but as far as the, the pace of it, um, in a speech to print approach, while maybe an activity might take longer or getting through a pattern might take longer for some students. First of all, I wouldn't hold up an entire class. 
um, for them. I would keep going. Um, and then, of course, give that supplemental instruction to those students who need it. But what we see is there, it's, it, we know this in speech language pathology and faith. I don't, I don't think you're an SLP, are you? No, I'm not. Okay. You, you, you but I know a lot about it. <laughs> I was going to say, you're an honorary SLP for sure. So <laughs> when we work with oral language, um, there's something called a process approach. We can't, we don't teach all the words. We don't teach all the sounds. We teach just a handful. And when the brain figures it out, it generalizes to everything else that it applies to. The same concept is going on, again, in the way we approach speech to print. I can't talk for other programs that are out there, um, but it's a process approach. So let's say I've worked on um, the, the A constant E pattern. What they learn there will generalize to the other um, vowel consonant E patterns. I might have to fill in a few things here and there with a few words, but it generalizes. And so there is that quickness of learning in that sense. Um, I probably had other thoughts, but that's it that Okay, so I'm going to jump on this a bit. So, you know, again, this is new for a lot of people and it's different, but I want to bring it back to what we're talking about in terms of the article. What are your thoughts about letter names, Jan? I know as a practitioner that this, to me, was one of the most important things that I learned for new readers and for kids um, who are struggling to read, that removing the letter name temporarily, I want to just be clear, that's not like you never teach a letter name, but temporarily that it does help kids get past some of the confusion that they've had. Um, and that is unusual in this country. Um, you know, in the UK with synthetic phonics, they always teach, um, you know, when they're doing letters, they go by sounds, they don't do letter names first. I, you know, I've been following a lot of groups forever. You know, I've been at this now for, a long time, and it always made sense to me to avoid that for a while. Some of your thoughts about this? Yeah, well, and because you've been on the Spell Talk listserv for so long, you know this is usually a very hotly debated topic when it does come up, and it comes up from time to time. I personally, um, and based on my reading of the literature, uh, first of all, I don't think there's an answer here. I, I, People can argue with very good evidence on both sides. So, um, but where I sit, I'll just tell you where I sit and how I would work with students. Uh, and again, based on evidence and research. Um, first of all, before, because it's a speech to print program, students have to be able to write letters, right? They have to be able to form letters, maybe not perfectly, but certainly they have to form letters. So we would begin with handwriting or letter formation instruction first. And during that time where the focus is handwriting, letter formation, we do give the letter a name. You write the letter A. And we, we, it, what you're doing is you're naming the object. You're giving a label to an object. Um, and it's just like I call this a pencil. It would be really hard for me to teach without referencing, okay, grab your pencil, right? I, I got to give it a name. Um, so later on, I might be using that name, but I, I don't really use it as much during the speech to print instruction. I do, they've already known it because they've learned during writing instruction. Letter A, 
and they write it. Okay, now during speech to print instruction, they're simply mapping letters and we're just saying sounds. So let's say the word is cat. Everyone wants to use the word cat. Um, they would see the letter C. I would not be saying the letter names. I would only be saying the letter sounds. So I would say, you know, let's cats. You, um, uh, do you have a cat at home? Yeah. Okay. What kind of cat? Well, mine's a tabby cat. We, we talk about it. I might use it as an opportunity to expand their oral language because we know vocabulary is really important. <clears throat> mat is a great example. So I'll take the word mat, you know, so sure there's a doormat and there's a table mat and there's a place mat. And so it's a fun way to integrate the, the vocabulary into speech to print instruction. Okay. But now we're going to, we're going to write it. So let's segment it out first. Mm, at. I write the letters. Mm, at. Now my student is going to copy. We know from research, copy is very effective, right? Copy and map the letters. Mm, at, mat. So nowhere in that activity did I use the letter name. Did I talk about the letters? Um, I mean, I guess maybe some point I might say, is that a letter A? <laughs> and I don't know, maybe I do. But for the most part, it's not part of the instruction. It's not part of the methodology. So they're kind of like separate things. Um, but again, it's a speech to print approach where students have to have that letter writing skill before they really get too far. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Now, yes. if you look at Linnea Aries' work, Rebecca Treeman as well, um, students do use letter names to help encode words. And I, I think maybe, you know, where this whole debate might come down on, because again, there's research on both sides. It might come down on whether it's, if you're teaching more of a speech to print versus print to speech approach, you know, does it interfere more? In a speech to print, in, in the encoding of words, students actually on their own demonstrate what's called letter name spelling. That's a stage they go through. They pay attention. So, you know, they want to spell um, pan and they say p, p, and they know p goes with the letter P, right? Because in, in P, in that name, you hear p and they write a letter P. So that actually facilitates their very early emergent spelling. So I would argue in a speech to print world, Knowing letter names is fine. They have to know it anyhow for letter writing. Mm -hmm. And I think that many kids come to school knowing their letter names, at least in this country. But when it comes to instruction, I'm glad you said that. There's a difference between knowing a letter name, but using it to teach reading in terms yeah. of blending sounds together. That's what yeah. I'm hearing you say. Okay, good. 100%. That's how I feel as well. And um, I do think um, that was a little bit confusing here. Lynn also mentioned, let me just find it. Uh, let me see. She, where is that? It was confusion in terms of, oh, she said that morphemes, I got it, that morphemes are stable and letters are stable, right? Letter names don't change. They're stable. Uh -huh. Morphemes are stable, but accent is not. So the way we speak, like Judy and I are from Brooklyn. <laughs> we will sound different from people from the Midwest or other parts of the country. And that's why she feels starting with those places, those types of things 
would be a good starting point because it's stable. Could you comment on that? Well, okay, accent, which yeah, that's is what different she's talking from, about. Yeah. Accent. Yes, which is different from dialect. So I'll go with I'll take it at face value. Accent, as you said, you being from New York, me being from Chicago, some people being from Texas. We will definitely sound very different when we say the sound that goes at the beginning of the word apple, right? That short vowel sound. Mm -hmm. But it's the same phoneme. It doesn't matter how you say it. It's the same phoneme. Mm -hmm. So that that is the accent has no place in the discussion here. Now, dialect is a whole nother thing. Um, and I, I don't know what she meant specifically. But again, I'll take if she said accent, we'll go with accent. Yep, I do believe she used accent. Um, let me just see if I could find it. Yeah, while you're looking for that, I'll just say that also when, when working with students who have an accent that might be different from yours. Yeah, I found it. Okay. I found, sorry, accent variation. It, that was one of her points, accent variation. How you say words may be different from how your students say words. The sounds in words are the least stable, predictable thing about them. That's what she wrote. Okay, the, the acoustic phonetics of sounds can be very variant, based, like we were saying, with accent. But what is not variant is the underlying phoneme. Mm -hmm. that, that is stable. The phoneme is the phoneme is the phoneme. So mm -hmm. if you say apple, or you say apple, I'm, I don't want to even try to imitate different... <laughs> Accents because I would probably be insulting to them, um, not intentionally, but yeah. So no, um, accent is irrelevant. And so, as I was saying, if you're working with a student and their accent is different than yours, that's fine. Just they say the word apple in their own accent, and they map that letter A to the the phoneme. Um, phonemes are, are are this is a big problem with speech to print too. Is that the focus is not on speech? It really should be on the phoneme. Um, and those are stable. Yeah. So using your spelling voice to teach that, that that is the phoneme. So when I say spelling voice, using it so that we're, we're getting rid of some of um, the problems that occur in terms of accent. Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure I understand. How so in other words, the phoneme is the phoneme. Mm -hmm. So, so if we're going to turn on, you know, what the phoneme is in terms of wanting to spell this, then um, that should help in terms of when we're doing the spelling and being able to write it. We're writing. We are using the grapheme to map what that phoneme is. Mm -hmm. yeah, it doesn't matter right. how it's pronounced. The phoneme is the right. phoneme. It doesn't matter phoneme. how it's pronounced. That's what I'm trying to say. Here, here's a really good analogy, I think, that can help your listeners wrap their brain around that. I know you haven't got your brain wrapped, but think about how you write a letter B, how everyone writes a letter, any letter. I'm picking letter B. We could write it so many ways, right? Or it could be in this font or that font. It could be cursive. It could be printed. Still a letter B, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. the graph name is letter B, the fonts—that's just all how it's output and and, rec and uh, realized in print. Mm -hmm. But a graph name is a graph name is a graph name. It doesn't change. A phoneme is a phoneme is a phoneme. It doesn't change. Right. 
And that's exactly what I think was missing here in terms of understanding that. Judy, do you have any questions about yeah. the article or anything I said here? see in the classrooms in the field, though, a lot of mispronunciation of phonemes, which confuses kids sometimes. And it's not intentional. And I think it does relate to dialect sometimes. And that does impact what kids hear. So any advice on that? Yeah, well, it depends on the type of mispronunciation you're you're referencing. For sure, when Very modeling in the field, I know. I'm sorry. Vowels are really hard for a lot of kids, and they don't hear them that well very often in classrooms. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll get to vowels in just a minute. So consonants. It's really important to say the consonant without inserting an extra vowel sound. So the letter, the sound that goes with letter P is p and not p. Um, and we, I just tell my students the whisper sound. We don't have to get into what the vocal cords are doing and the air is flowing. And it's not anatomy, physiology, articulation class is a whisper sound. And we say, um, so that's the only time where I really get focused on correct versus incorrect. Because, yeah, we teach our students that letter P represents the P sound that will interfere with both their spelling and their decoding of words. Now. Vowel sounds, first of all, vowel sounds are really tricky to perceive in isolation because we don't perceive phonemes in isolation. Any phoneme is hard to perceive in isolation. Phonemes don't exist in isolation, but yet for teaching purposes, we have to kind of pull them apart. Well, by pulling them apart, we're, we're making it harder for students, for anyone to identify them. Um, so you have to, again, taking it back to words right away and teaching skills in an integrated way. You're talking about cat. You first introduce the word, the meaning. Okay, now they've activated, they know what phonemes those are at a subconscious level in their brain. You've activated cat. So they don't, they know what the phoneme is, whether or not they're saying, you're saying it exactly the way they say it, or they're saying it exactly, they know what the phoneme is. However, now you might be talking about, well, let me give me an example, because I wonder if you're going into vowel discrim, because that might be. Oh, here, like an A and an O sounds so similar that if I was a kid on the test or on an assessment, I wouldn't know which vowel to write. Because Okay, and do, do you mean in isolation or do you mean yeah, in, in isolation? Okay, well, that's, that's kind of unfair, <laughs> because um, we don't perceive phonemes in isolation. Now, if the student, and this happens all the time, students confuse bit and bet, um, right? Uh, cap and cap, cap and cop. Then there is, there, there's a vowel discrim, phonemic discrimination issue. It's in the context of a word, a real word, and yet the students are struggling to identify those phonemes. Well, we've got to help them with that because until they reliably identify the phoneme, they can't put a letter with it. There's no place to hang that letter. Um, so then you, you don't do isolated sound exercises. You do it in the context of words because phonemes only exist in words. So then you do minimal pairs like cot and cat. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and again, this gets back to, you know, all teachers, all practitioners really have to understand the language literacy system to know why they're doing what they're doing. Materials are not magical. Um, they might save time, but unless you know what you're doing, um, yeah, you get stuck. So there's a lot there. Reading, Louise Moe said it best, reading is rocket science, and I'm going to say spelling is rocket science too. 
So my last, my last question refers to her part two article where she had solutions and her solutions were so reasonable, but I would think that everybody would be doing, like you said, definitely looking at, um, words once they've gotten to a point where you could get into the morpheme of a word um, at a certain stage and how you approach it. Her suggestions were extremely reasonable. So I'm just wondering, is there a misunderstanding in terms of what this speech to print um, approach really is? Because it does go deeper. It does approach it does get into morphemes. It does. Well, and it does get into all these things, the schwa sound and polysyllabic words. I just think when I read this article, it seemed like there's a misunderstanding that maybe Lynn knows something about this, but maybe it didn't go far enough. Either her understanding of it did not go far enough. Yeah, well, I can't speak for her understanding. I, I, were you finished with your question? Yeah, well, I saw something pop up. Oh. Um, anyhow, um, it didn't go far enough, or that perhaps, um, you know, there's a misunderstanding. Maybe I should leave it at that. Well, th yeah, again, there very well may be, and it would be um, great when we, you, we can get Lynn here as well. I think um, based on almost 20 years of moderating the Spell Talk listserv, I will say that, and, and this is where we have everybody on, of all stripes discussing all different topics related to reading, writing, and spelling, um, and there can be some heated debates. What I have learned is almost always it comes down to, we're not really in disagreement, we're just not using the terms the same way, um, or defining what we mean clearly enough. And so I think most, most, disagreements come down to just um, not having a clear understanding of of the different positions. That's all. Mm -hmm. um, and no, and, and as I said earlier, I um, I have no problem with the types of um, instruction that she gave examples of. But right, it's 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 all of the pieces. It's mm -hmm. speech to print, multilinguistic, metalinguistic. Um, and it really is going to come down to, I've said this before, who are you working with? Why are you doing this? When are you doing this? How much are you doing? How are you doing it? Right. Um, it's hard to just get, and I understand she's writing a blog and making a point, and this is what we do. But at the end of the day, it, you, you've got to tease out all those pieces as well. So one comment on that, that we're definitely as, as a good illustration of this. So, um, the word definitely, I, the research shows that, um, well, not the research shows, we know that students have morphemes in their oral language, okay? But not all morphemes. There are some morphemes that only exist in writing. So rather than teaching those morphemes that only exist in writing, like F-I-N-E, fine, meaning constrained or, or finite or anything, it's best to begin with what our students bring to the task, right? I would probably start with definite or finite because those are, again, it depends on the student and the age. Mm -hmm. But let's start with what they already know and build from their generative learning. Um, and, and 
And anyhow, and 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 yes, teach that. That that's a root. I teach that root. It's an important one. It's just kind of sequence and utility and with whom. These are all factors that have to be taken into discussion and consideration. Judy, do you have any last thoughts or questions? Nope. I just definitely want to check out this approach and I'm open to it. I'm open to seeing and I'm hoping that, you know, um, that this approach is used for the students that it will help. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think where, that's, I, that's a great attitude for everyone. To where's have. the next best step if I would want to learn more about it? Well, you could come to our website if you, um, or Spell Talk even, um, and I know Judy will put, or Faith will put that in the um, the notes. Uh, but yes, so, so we do a lot on spelllinks.com um, and Spell Talk to let you know more about it. Definitely. And I'm happy to come back here anytime. You ladies are uh, such a pleasure to talk with. Seriously. I, I really enjoyed the time. Thank together. you. Thank, Thank you so you. much. I just want to leave one last thought. So as far as, um, you know, I, I mentioned Lynn Stone is definitely um, someone I've known for a long time. I respect her work. Uh, her approaches are certainly solid. What she was offering is solid. And the one thing that I think I got out of these articles is we can't be so narrow and so married to something that we can't accept something else, even if it's not written into a program. Mm -hmm. You know, like I think what she was saying is that some people, practitioners, want something that's like, lockstep, like moving according to exactly what the program says. And then that could be problematic when we're not open to hearing from other approaches or other things. And I would agree with that. That I would agree. And, and that's why I think it's important to get as much training as you can for as a teacher to be able to tease out and understand what it is and why you're doing it and how you're doing it. Um, and basically, you know, I've done both approaches and um, I, I do see faults in programs. And because I'm not married to it, I will tell people I work with, um, you know what, I don't think that works very well. Try this. So I do think it's important to be objective and independent. Mm -hmm. So, all right, Jan, any last thoughts that we didn't cover? Um, no, I'm just really, again, really pleased to have this opportunity and clear up a lot of misconceptions about speech to print. Um, and to echo what you did say, um, I have high respect for Lynn's work. And I, I think that everything in there was and is appropriate to do and use just again the the right time and the you know needing to know when and with whom and all that um and i i have a feeling she would probably agree as well uh it just wasn't that venue in which she wrote it but <clears throat> i do hope also that um you will do more on speech to print uh as well as the other pieces as well the multi um component and, and metalinguistic um and I, if Yes. So thank you again. And I'll give you the, the links to put in your show notes so listeners thank can you. find everything. Fabulous. Well, 2024, Judy, you heard it. This is a hot topic. So 
Um, I think we certainly will and hopefully get Lynn on in the future. So Judy, go ahead, hit it. How can people get in touch with us? All right. Follow us on Facebook, The Literacy View, Real Teachers Letting Loose. Follow us on Instagram, The Literacy View. Follow Faith on Twitter at High Five Literacy. Follow me on Twitter at Boxner Damsky. Also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Literacy View, Real Teachers Letting Loose. Also, Apple Podcasts, The Literacy View, Buzzsprout, The Literacy View. Write us a review and share and subscribe with your friends. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Jan, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Happy and healthy New Year to you. You as well. You as well. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.